Hello, patrons. Welcome to this episode of the Jack Podio podcast. Bonus flash forward Jack Podio. No, I don't think that's working. Jackpot audio. Mm. Nope. Still don't think that works. Uh, this is the bonus podcast, the bonus episode for the third episode of the Bodies mini season of Flash Forward. Um, this one was about animal testing and the future where we outlawed animal testing. We stopped doing it completely. Um, as I said in the episode, um, I was really nervous about releasing this. Um, about four months ago, I thought I was starting to brainstorm um, the bodies season and figure out, you know, what kinds of futures would be fun to do for bodies. And I knew that I wanted to do an animal episode because animals have bodies, too. And bodies are not just the domain of humans. Um, and I thought, you know, like, it would be really interesting to do an episode about animal testing and about um, a world where we couldn't do it anymore. And then over the course of reporting it, I regretted that decision many times because it's really complicated. Um, it's really controversial. Um, and there's just so much to know about it. So um, I did a lot of reading. <laughs> I did a lot of thinking and a lot of talking to friends who, you know, think about this stuff. I have some friends who are involved in both sides of the debate. Um, and so trying to kind of understand where people land and why. Um, and I was nervous about putting out this episode for a couple of reasons. The first being that I was afraid to just mess something up. And that's like a baseline fear that I have for every episode, but particularly for something like this where it's really controversial. Um, but I was also afraid because I wanted to be really careful and really fair to both sides of this debate. Because one of the really interesting things that I sort of have been thinking about um, when it comes to animal testing, and this is actually something that I've talked to Kelly Hills a lot um, about as I was reporting this episode. Her and I were chatting about it. Um, Kelly has been on the show a couple of times. Um, she's the co-founder of um, Rogue Bioethics. So you heard her on um, the episode about uh, inheritance and family history. Um, you've heard her on a couple of episodes. She's really great. She's a bioethicist. And she said to me, and she said this thing that I always think about now when I think about animal testing, which is um, that basically, unlike a lot of other debates that you might have or debates that might be really raging and so, 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 you know, hot button issues for people, um, pretty much everybody is engaging in good faith. Like everybody who cares about this topic cares because they want to make the world a better place. And they really do care deeply about being compassionate and being, you know, ethically sound and, and they want to do the right thing. Um, it's just complicated because what is the right thing? That's a really hard question to answer. One thing that's kind of weird and interesting about making something like a podcast or really making anything as a creator um, in 2019 where everybody has access to you to give you feedback via email and Facebook and Instagram and Patreon and Twitter and a million other ways that people can kind of come to you and give you direct feedback is that I think that often it winds up leading to a sort of both sides ism. And you see this in like political discourse, you see this in political coverage where, you know, well, the Nazis are bad, but also, you know, somebody threw a milkshake at someone and, and like those are not equivalent. But there is this kind of, I think, hesitancy among reporters like and I feel this myself, to take a really um, a really specific stand when you know that there are people who disagree with you who might come at you very intensely. Um, and that is absolutely the case with animal testing, right? There is a group 
of supporters or you know they're a group of people who really really believe strongly one way or the other and um have in the past sometimes resorted to harassment and things like that um and so as i was reporting this and writing the script and i do this for almost everything i do at this point everything i write um which i don't think is actually very necessarily a good thing was trying to think of like okay what are the what are the ways that this could be misconstrued? What are the ways that this could be interpreted? How could people freak out about this? You know, can I put in a caveat to make it, you know, a little bit muddier and make the sort of stance less clear? And sometimes I think that's important, right? You should be thinking about counter arguments to the things that you're going to say, because if you don't think about counter arguments, you might miss something. But other times I think that it means that we wind up kind of giving equal credence to both sides because we're afraid of getting yelled at on the internet. And I know I feel that way sometimes. Um, and I was worried in this particular case that I might fall into that trap and over uh, give more credence to one argument or another, not because I actually thought they were legitimate arguments, but because I thought that um, I might get yelled at on Twitter, which is never fun. And I know that sounds like very silly, but having been um, the sort of target of coordinated harassment campaigns before, I can tell you that it's actually really stressful. <laughs> um, and I take things personally and I do try to read everything and I, you know, I want to I want to get better and I want to get feedback. And so it's really hard sometimes to, to figure out the line between constructive feedback and people who are just angry. Um, and whether they're, sometimes they're angry for a good reason and that is constructive feedback and sometimes they're not. Um, so that's a very long-winded way of saying that I was worried that I might create an episode that was too both sides -y. Like, oh, well, both sides have points um, when maybe that's not as much the case. In fact, I think it is the case in this situation. Um, but I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't pulling any punches because I was afraid that someone was going to get mad and send me something mean online. Or a lot of people might do that. One person I can deal with. It's when it's a lot of people. That's when it gets kind of scary. Um, and, and so to that end, as I was creating the episode, I'm Every decision I made in terms of the script came back to, like, is this fair? Am I doing this in a way that is both accurate and also compassionate and fair to both sides of the argument? Um, and so, for example, like, um, I had a whole section in here where I was going to describe um, some of the experiments that get done on animals today. And it turns out <laughs> it's very hard to... Um, Describe the ways that certain experiments get done um, such that it doesn't sound like you're trying to make them overly dramatic and you're trying to emphasize how horrible they may be, but also doesn't shy away from talking about what they're actually like. Um, and the specific language that you use matters, right, in those cases. And I went back and forth a lot. I wrote out like several examples of like, here's what they do. And you, you heard one in the episode, um, the one about cosmetics testing, where they shave the rabbit's hair, they apply the cosmetic or the chemical to their skin, and they wait and see if the rabbit reacts. And that's that's what happens in the experiment. Um, depending on which side is describing that experiment, that the descriptions of what happens in that experiment are vastly different um, in terms of like just what it sounds like. Um, and so I went back and forth a ton about like how much to even say about what some of these experiments are. Sometimes it's really hard to actually find detailed information about what experiments actually are like. So you can find, you know, animal rights activists describing these experiments. Um, but then if you go to the paper that they're talking about and you look at the methods section, that doesn't always line up. And it's really hard to figure out like what exactly is actually happening to some of these animals. So, um, you know, I probably could have like FOIA'd for the Iacook 
um, applications that they made. And I just didn't I didn't end up doing that. So I mostly didn't talk about those things because I wasn't sure if I could do it in a way that was fair and accurate. I think that's important to say. Um, not just fair. It also has to be accurate. Um, so, yeah, so that was kind of the big back and forth. And I did a ton of back and forth um, about all of those things Um in working on this episode. So far, I will say the feedback that I've gotten has been really great. Even people who sort of disagree with um, what they heard in the episode have been really nice about it and sort of said, like, here's my opinion, here's how I feel. But I, they've all said that they felt like I did an okay job of, like, presenting a lot of different arguments. Um, and like I said, I couldn't get deep into all of them. So um, there are more things to say about this topic, obviously. And if you do want to read more, um, I do have a huge list of links um, on the blog post for the episode. So that's very long-winded way of saying I was kind of freaking out <laughs> on Monday. That is also compounded by the fact that um, I was finishing the episode on Monday, as I often do on Mondays, because as you know, they come out on Tuesdays really early in the morning. I talked about this in the last bonus episode. Um, you may have noticed that this episode, this animal testing episode, came out later than usual. Um, it did not go out at 3 a.m. Eastern time on Tuesday. It went out later in the day. And that is because on Monday, my lovely dog, who is now laying next to me, managed to basically partially tear her doggy ACL. Um great, super fun, um, lovely, really sad for her. She's, you know, limping around, couldn't put any weight on it. It was, of course, Memorial Day, so there were no, the vets were not open. Um, there is an emergency vet near us, but um, as many of you may know, emergency vets are extremely expensive. Um, and we were very lucky that um, a friend of ours is a vet, and he actually offered to come over and take a look at her and um, gave us some painkillers for her. So she's okay. She's supposed to stay off of it, um, which is hard for her because our dog is large and loves to run around. Her main joy in life is running, just running as much as possible. So um, we have her on some mild sedatives to keep her calm and keep her from walking around on it too much. But that all happened on Monday. And so I did not finish the episode on Monday. And so it went, I finished it on Tuesday morning. Um, so yeah. And so Tuesday morning when it went out, I was very afraid and I logged off of Twitter for like 24 hours. And then I came back and everyone was actually quite nice. It was great. Um, so getting to the stuff that I cut from this episode, um, I had a whole big section about sort of the history of animal testing, um, but it was just too long to fit. So I want to talk to you a little bit in this bonus Jack Patio. <laughs> It makes me laugh every time. Um, uh, oh, I want yes, I want to talk to you about the history of animal testing. So animal testing has gone back a really long time. Um, we know that people like Aristotle and Galen did experiments on living animals um, in Greece. So it was actually an Arab physician in the 12th century named Ibn Zur, who was the one who introduced animal testing for um, surgical procedures. So like doing a method on an animal before applying it to humans. Um, and... Uh, like the stuff that we used to do to people back then, a lot of these tests were um, and experiments were really gruesome. So they used to dissect animals while they were still alive. And actually, there are reports of Greek anatomists in the third century doing live dissections of humans. So like actually cutting them apart while they were living. Um, that sort of ended around then. But animal dissection, live animal dissection, which is sometimes called vivisection, um, continued on. Um, and and for these early anatomists and scientists, um, the question that we encountered and the question that we sort of really grappled with in that episode that you heard, whether or not we should or shouldn't use animals in these sorts of tests or dissections, that wasn't 
really a relevant question to them. They believed that animals were put on Earth to serve humans, basically, and that anim- and that humans were like way, way higher up on what they called the chain of being. And so this idea that maybe we shouldn't do this to animals was kind of like not even really a question um, at the time. I mean, every you can always find people who are talking about how we shouldn't do this. I don't want to make it sound like no one ever objected, but it wasn't. Um, nearly as common of a conversation as we have today. I think today pretty much everybody understands that this is an ethically complicated area, whereas there it was only a couple of people who were like, hey, we shouldn't do this, at least in the West, in, in like Greece and Rome. Um, around the third and fourth century in Greece and Rome, you start to see arguments against dissections of both cadavers, human cadavers and animals. Um, but it wasn't because they thought that it was cruel. It was because they thought that it was useless. Um, so there was a school of thought at the time called empiricism, uh, which argued, among lots of other things, that pain and death would distort the internal organs of an animal and render any information that you might glean from these experiments totally useless. Um, So they kind of were like, there's no point in doing this because as soon as the animal is dead or if it's suffering, um, it's going to make the organs different. And so you won't actually learn anything about a living sort of chill animal, which is kind of an interesting argument. And in fact, that argument kind of pops up sometimes in animal rights circles. Um, One argument that I didn't get into on the episode is that um, these animals in these tests are in such stressful environments that actually the data you get is is useless because they're not they don't like the body reacts to stress in a a specific way. And that is actually sort of true. Um, There are studies that show that if the animals are super stressed out or in a ton of pain or just depressed or whatever it is, um, that your data is going to be bad. So the empiricists were wrong in that, like, the organs aren't totally different after you die. But they were kind of onto something in terms of there being a difference between a living, chill animal in its main and normal environment and an animal that you might test on. Um, But so after the sort of third and fourth centuries, you start to see um, anatomical, medical animal testing sort of fall out of common practice. We enter the dark ages. Um, people in the West are not really looking for scientific answers to the war- like things going on around them. So it wasn't really until the Renaissance um, that dissection and animal testing starts to really crop up again and get popular. Um, this is also in part because the Catholic Church was very opposed to dissecting of human bodies. Um, so technically, scientists were not supposed to be doing that, um, although we do obviously know that they definitely did it anyway. Um, But without sort of a regular, easy supply of human bodies to dissect, uh, a lot of scientists turned to animals. And in fact, part of the reason that people in the 16th and 17th century really ramped up dissecting animals, looking at animals as sort of proxies for humans is because of a person that we talked about in episode two of the body season. Um, in the Tattooables uh, episode, remember how I told you that Rene Descartes actually sort of advanced this idea that bodies are like machines. Yes, you remember this, hopefully. So that was really just kind of half of his theory. The other half was that the only thing that made humans what we are was that we had souls that occupied these machine bodies. So the body is a machine and the thing that makes humans special and important and better than other animals and sort of unique um, was that we had this soul inside of us that kind of like helps operate this body and animates the body that is the machine. Descartes did not believe that animals had souls, which meant that not only was it totally fine to do experiments on them, it was also useful because uh, their bodies, like our bodies, functioned like machines. So opening them up and seeing how they worked could teach us about our bodies, our machine bodies, without having to worry about this whole pesky soul problem that you get when you talk about people. Um, 
So Descartes comes up a ton when you look into the history of animal testing. Um, And if you start Googling around for history of animal testing Descartes, you will find um, a ton of like blog posts and essays and, you know, historical accounts that depict Descartes as this like honestly unimaginably cruel guy who would do things like nail live dogs to boards and sort of cut them open while they're still alive and um, believed that animals felt no pain and all this stuff. Um, And I I was like, that seems, I mean, it's really hard for me to imagine any person who lives in the world and who encounters animals believing that animals feel no pain. I mean, like if you just imagine like your dog, for example, like my dog limping around, like obviously that dog is in pain. It seems totally bizarre for me to believe that someone like Descartes, who had spent a ton of time thinking about the nature of the body and the soul, could live in the world and believe that animals felt no pain and had sort of no sensations. Um, And it turns out that I am correct. That's probably not true. Um, There's actually a a lot of historians who have written about and argued that, um, that we've kind of turned Descartes into this boogeyman for a lot of stuff that he did not believe. Um, So you can read all of these um, accounts of, you know, Descartes as this truly like nightmare person who would like in one account he literally takes his wife's pet dog and nails it to a board and cuts it open while it's alive like truly like gruesome horrifying stuff um and and most of that probably is not true most that like that specific story which you'll hear repeated a lot I couldn't really find any convincing historical evidence that that actually happened Descartes did do a lot of experiments on animals and he did do vivisection um which means dissecting while alive or you know doing something to the animal while alive which is horrible horrible horrifying yes um but he did not actually believe that animals couldn't feel pain um and and actually a lot of the experiments that he did weren't quite as horrible as people describe so there's this um there's this historian named John Cottingham who has this really interesting paper um called A Brute to the Brutes, Descartes' Treatment of Animals, which I'll link to in the notes for this little Jack Patio episode. Um, and he basically argues that, in fact, Descartes did not believe that animals couldn't feel pain or anything like that. He never wrote that. He never said that. Um, and he kind of goes through all the ways that Descartes has kind of been potentially misinterpreted or um, whether intentionally or unintentionally um, and sort of talks about the ways that Descartes um, he didn't believe that animals you know couldn't feel any pain and, and were incapable of feeling sensation or understanding the world around them um, so that's sort of an interesting little tidbit that um, I was going to include in the episode and I did not I cut um The other thing that I caught from the episode was sort of a a longer discussion of cosmetics testing, animals used in cosmetics testing, um, because I think that that's actually a really good example of a place or uh, an area where we can and probably should really, if not completely eliminate animal testing, like cut it back a lot compared to where we are now. Um, And there's a little bit of an interesting historical anecdote um, about uh, animal testing on cosmetics. So I mentioned in the episode the um, elixir sulfonilamide, which is sort of the raspberry flavored drug that caused a mass poisoning in the U.S. and in many ways um, led to the law that dictates now that, you know, drugs have to be tested on animals before they can be marketed. Um, 
a couple years before that happened, there was actually another incident. So, um, you know, I think the elixir sulfonilamide was the, the big push that caused the FDA to pass a law like this. But um, there's a reason that cosmetics are included in that law. And that's because a couple years earlier, there was another incident with um, something that wasn't tested that causes a lot of caused a lot of problems. So in 1933, um, over a dozen women were blinded. Um, and one woman actually died from using what they call a permanent mascara called Lash Lure. And Lash Lure contained this chemical um, called P-phenylenediamine. I think I said that right. <laughs> That's really hard to say. Um, and it was completely untested, again, just like the um, the other example. And um, the this chemical, uh, P-phenylenediamine, um, causes just horrible blisters and abscesses and ulcers on your face and your eyelids and on the eyes. And yeah, it blinded about a dozen women. Um, and uh, one of those women um, developed a bacterial infection in one of the ulcers and ended up dying. Um, and so that's part of why cosmetics are included in the FDA Act that says that you have to test on animals. And so technically today, um, you do not have to test cosmetics on animals in the United States. Um, in fact, in some states, there are laws that say that you can't, you shouldn't, or you can't. And so I had a whole section um, in the episode about sort of the ins and outs of some of those laws, um, both in the US, in the EU, and in China. Um, and it's kind of complicated. Um, it was kind of wonky and like not that important, so I cut it. But basically, in the US, you do not have to test cosmetics on animals. There are some states that have laws that say that, yes, you can test on animals, but you have to, if you're going to test on animals, you have to also test on non-human models and prove that it is safe using non-human models. The idea is to kind of like slowly get us to a place where we can replace animal models in almost all of these cosmetic tests for shampoos, perfumes, hairsprays, dyes, shaving cream, makeup, all that stuff. Um, in the EU, it is technically uh, illegal to test on animals or to sell things that are tested on animals, but there are a bunch of loopholes um, to that law. For example, if there is a chemical in the cosmetic that is also used in something like a cleaning product or a drug, that can be tested on animals. Um, and it also doesn't include testing for like worker safety. Um, so there's lots of loopholes here. Um, and uh, and so, you know, just because something is sold in the EU doesn't mean it was never tested or none of the ingredients are tested on animals. In China, you have to test all cosmetics on animals. So um, one of the arguments people often make uh, in, in um, uh, opposition to laws that say that we should ban animal testing for cosmetics is that basically that would mean that any cosmetics manufacturer who worked uh, in the U.S. or in the EU or wherever this law might apply could not sell their products in China, which is a huge and growing market. Um, and so they make a kind of economic argument that that would sort of um, hinder the economic viability of some of these companies. Um, again, in China, there are loopholes to this as well. There's loopholes to all of these laws, but the idea is... Um, but sort of there's a sort of patchwork of laws. Um, and so I cut a section about that because honestly, it's like not that interesting to talk about the various laws in different places. Um, but I think the the thing that I will say is that I do, after having kind of done all this research, I do think that um, in the vast majority of cases, you can use these non-animal models um, to test cosmetic safety. These sort of in vitro models are really good for things like irritation Um I think that in general, um, we can and should shift away from testing of cosmetics in animals as much as we can, um, in part because these cosmetics, like, they're not saving anyone's lives. I don't know that it's really worth it. Um, 
And so that's my personal opinion on that. Um, I think that, you know, obviously you want to make sure things are safe and aren't going to kill people or make them sick or give them ulcers in their eyeballs, which sounds truly horrifying. But you also, I think, you know, don't necessarily need to use animals to make sure that that's true anymore. So I think that that's kind of something that I've been thinking about a lot. Um, I know that there are cosmetics brands that um, advertise themselves as cruelty free. And there are various certification systems that you can get kind of like USDA Organic or, you know, Fair Trade. There are these sort of organizing uh, groups that will sort of look at the process and look at the ingredients and make sure that you are, in fact, not testing on animals. I think Leaping Bunny is one of them. Um, and so I, I don't wear very much makeup. Um, but I do, I will kind of, I think in the future be looking more for that when I buy things like soap and shampoo and stuff like that. So, um, that is one thing that I'll probably change about my behavior after listening or after working on this episode. Um, that is all I have to say. I've been going on and on for a while now on this episode of the Jack Podio. No, I'm going to stop saying that. Um, that was all I was going to say. Um, Right now, I am packing up all my stuff, and I'm about to fly to Washington, D.C. for a wedding. Um, uh, very dear friends of mine are getting married. And um, so the secret I'm going to tell you um, at the end of this episode is about that. And it's about a surprise that I'm making for these two friends. And I am 99.9% sure that they do not listen to this bonus podcast. But if they do, Ed and Liz stop listening right now because I'm going to tell, I'm going to ruin the surprise of the gift that I'm making for you for your uh, wedding. I am like 99.9% sure they do not listen. Um, okay. I'm assuming they're gone now. So, um, Ed and Liz are these two very dear friends of mine. They asked me, um, I am, I'm the best man at this wedding, which is very exciting for me. <laughs> I'm super stoked. Um, they asked me, you know, if I wanted to do a speech or if I wanted to like make something or do something. Um, and, uh, I, I, you know, I don't, I'm very nervous about giving those kinds of speeches, which might surprise you since I talk into a microphone all day or many, a lot of the time, but public speaking and like speeches like that, um, are really scary to me. So, um, so I, uh, I decided instead to do something else, and I said that I was going to make them an audio surprise. And because I am the kind of person that I am, um, I decided to do something that wound up being way more work than probably it was worth. Um, and what I did was, so both of them give a lot of talks and have a lot of sort of like public speaking experience. And so I went to YouTube. I pulled down a ton of them both giving talks. And I trained a vocal algorithm on their voices so that I can now type into the algorithm of sentence and have it speak back to me in their voice. And so what I'm going to do for their wedding is give them a thing where um, they basically talk to the themselves today from the future. So it'll be like, oh, it's 50 years from now and here's here's what I've learned and being married to the, you know, whatever. It's going to be that like fine line between cute and creepy is like really what I'm, I'm writing right now. Um, turns out I thought this would be great. I thought it'd be like not that hard. Um, I know a little bit about how these algorithms work. And so I was like, oh, this would be great. Turns out it's way more work to do this than I expected. Um, to train the algorithm, you have to cut the audio up into tiny, tiny little pieces um, and then match a transcript and rename the file so that the transcript and the file name match. And just a lot of like really tedious work. It's not hard. It just takes a long time. And um, so at this point, I have um, around 2,000 clips for both of them trained into this algorithm. And it sounds 
okay, it sounds like them for sure. And it definitely sounds like them. It just also kind of sounds like a robot. Um, but I'm excited to show it to them. Um, I hope they think it's funny and not creepy. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Um, and uh, I hope, yeah, I hope that they like it. Um, so that's kind of what I've been spending my like nights and weekends working on these days. I'm actually very glad to be done with it because it's um, totally mind-melting, uh, tedious, terrible work to do. But it's almost done. And I'll let you know how it goes. Um, um Okay, um, that is all for this episode of the bonus podcast slash Jack Patio uh, for Flash Forward. Um, next week's episode is way less controversial, um, and uh, but also weird and interesting body body future. And then a week from that, on June 11th, um, there is, I think it's June 11th? No, yes. A week from then, on June 11th, uh, is the last episode of the Bodies mini-season. Um, the next mini-season, I am still trying to pick a theme. I sort of went down two different roads and started reporting two different ideas, and I can't decide. So um, I'm trying to decide between power as a theme, both like literally the kinds of power we will use to power devices, but also sort of like power in the more um, theoretical sense in terms of who is in charge and how, um, or crime, um, the future of crime. Um, uh, this is my very transparent attempt to uh, maybe capitalize on some of the true crime trend that is happening in podcasting that has been happening in podcasting for years and which I kind of hate in many ways um I I won't I won't get started on how I feel about true crime in podcasting but um maybe there is something interesting to do there about the various things that might happen in the future in terms of crime whether that's in space whether that's here whether that's technology like facial recognition or something like that um so yeah, if you have thoughts about that, uh, let me know. Okay, um, you'll hear from me on Tuesday of next week. Uh, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day slash rest of your week. Bye.